Hey guys, welcome to the Frontlines webinar podcast show, uh, Dancing Circus, whatever you want to call it. Here we are. I am Peyton Jones, author of Church Plantology and host of the show uh, or co-host, my other host on here, the, your other host on here, my co-host, this is why I don't do these introductions, is yeah, Daniel Yang, director, keep going, keep going. director of the Sin Institute. As long as it can be a little bit bumpy, we're good. Daniel, welcome. Hey, man. Good to be with you. I, I feel like uh, I know we do this every other week, but I feel like there's like eons in between each episode and so much life happens. So we just need to do something like every week. Maybe I need to come on your other podcast and we need to do that as well. So we'll just kind of keep going back and forth. And uh, really, man, we've been having a great time in the second season. I think some of the things that we've been really thinking about uh, as we crafted, I remember Peyton, a couple of weeks ago, we were kind of thinking about what do we need to really press into? What are some of the topics? So some of our uh, our guests coming up in the next couple of weeks, man, I think they're hitting some of the biggest issues that pastors, church leaders, church planners are dealing uh, with on a day-to-day -day basis. And that really is what we've been trying to gear the second season towards <laughs> is really hitting the on the ground, like day-to-day -day practical things that church planners and pastors are having to deal with. And so um, I'm really excited about the next couple of weeks we got coming up, man. Yeah, well, our guest today is Dr. Michelle Reyes, a second-generation Indian-American author, speaker, and activist. She's the vice president of the Asian American Christian Collaborative and the co-executive director at PAX. With her husband, Aaron, she co-planted Hope Community Church, a minority-led multicultural church in East Austin. Michelle is passionate about breaking cycles of injustice in our country and helping inspire and equip the next generation to live out their callings at the intersection of their faith and culture. Her writings on faith and culture have been featured in Christianity Today, ERLC, Michelle Alliance, The Gospel Coalition, and more. And she lives in Austin, Texas with her husband, two amazing kids, glad you said that, and in her free time, she loves to hike, play board games, and watch Bayern Munich. I don't even know what that is. What is that? So welcome to the show, but you got to tell us about what that last thing is. Well, hello, hello. Uh, it's so great to be with you all. Um, so I'm a big soccer fan, enthusiast. I played soccer at Wheaton College, uh, you know, so played college soccer. And uh, Bayern Munich is probably one of the most well-known soccer teams in Germany. So not so, Bayern Munich, just to be clear, Bayern. Bayern München. Oh. <laughs> but, but, oh. Yeah, but, but yeah, yeah. People okay. say but it however you want to say it. <laughs> which he, Peyton doesn't know this probably, but uh, Michelle has her PhD in Germanic studies. So That's true. She, wow. That's true. So my husband German. and I, we also lived in Germany for a while and got to see some games in person, which was really exciting. Wow, that is legit. Well, <laughs> one thing I didn't mention is, Michelle, you've just written a book which dropped, and I was very jealous because uh, Daniel Yang got a box set with this with <laughs> a did. mug with chai tea in it. It was the coolest book drop ever, but the book is called Becoming All Things, How Small Changes Lead to Lasting Connections across cultures. Definitely a relevant topic, which so many of the conversations that we had during the Divided No More um, kind of series that we did with people of, of different groups was to actually try to get people to enter this conversation. And often the practical step that people would suggest is make friends with people from different ethnicities, like step across those cultural barriers. What I love about this book 
is it's actually taking that one step, putting on a microscope and saying, just start with this. But before we get into the book, um, tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get here? Yeah, definitely. So uh, as as you read in my bio, I'm second generation Indian American. Um, my mom is 100% ethnically Indian, although she wasn't born in India. She was born and raised in Uganda, Africa. Um, her great-great-grandparents were brought there as forced laborers by the British Empire to build a railroad. Um, and then in the 60s, they fled as refugees with literally the clothes on their backs when President Idi Amin was waging a genocide against Indians and other minorities uh, to England. And my mom eventually made her way to the United States, met my dad, uh, who is of British and German heritage. He has blonde hair, blue eyes. Um, and it's, it's kind of special because we have two children. Uh, my five-year-old son looks like me, Akash, um, dark brown skin, dark brown hair, brown eyes. And our daughter, Ava, is fair, fair skin, uh, blonde, curly hair, blue eyes. And so beauty is a multiracial family and kind of a representation of um, both my mom and my dad. Uh, but I was born in South Carolina, grew up in Minnesota, and am now in Austin, Texas. And, and so a lot of my a lot of my book, but also just my growing up was in a Scandinavian community in a small town in Minnesota, where my mom, my sister and I were literally the only brown skinned people I knew. Uh, you know, it wasn't just that I didn't know any other Indians. I, I didn't have any other Asian American classmates. I didn't, I didn't have any African American or Latino American or Native American classmates. It was just me uh, in the, in, in the, uh, a school of blonde-haired, blue-eyed classmates who all loved Swedish meatballs and cross-country skiing, and um, you know all the rest, which is fun. And I, I, I did a good bit of that too growing up in Minnesota. But um, for a lot of my life, I just felt like I, I, there was something wrong with me. Like I didn't, I didn't fit in anywhere. There was, there was nobody like me, or that, that thought like me, or, or dressed like me. Um, I have that very typical experience that many Asians have of sitting at that cafeteria table alone because I was bringing homemade Indian food to school. And this was before Indian food became popular, became a food trend, right? And, and so nobody knew what this was. And um, it was like that smelly, gross looking food. Um, and so, yeah, it, I think if I was to go back and talk to my high school self, I I would, I would be sitting down with a girl who, who didn't know what her purpose was in life. Like I was a Christian, but I didn't know how, what I was supposed to do, like how I was supposed to live my life or to honor God with my life. Cause I just didn't know where I fit. Um, and I, I, I wish I could go back to that, you know, 15, 16 year old girl and tell her that, that the way God has made me as a, as a, a bicultural uh, woman is on purpose. And actually there's, there's, there is so much divine intent for bicultural and multicultural peoples to live at these intersections of majority minority world um, and to know how to speak to both sides, to understand how to speak to uh, white majority culture and also to fellow black and brown communities um, and to be the bridge builders and to be the ones paving the road for racial reconciliation. And I see that now. Um, and, 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 uh, and so in many ways, this is what prompted me to, to, to write the book that I just wrote, um, you know, my husband and I, we are church planters in Austin, Texas. Uh, we planted Hope Community Church in 2014. Um, and just as we're doing 
vocational ministry on the streets, uh, shepherding our church in connecting across cultures daily. Uh, and those questions keep coming up about how, how do I do this well? How do I not just completely offend the other person, uh, even if I have good intentions or even, you know, um, how, how do I try again after I've, I've, you know, just crashed and burned so terribly, like all of those questions, right? And I feel like in my own life, I've been living that out daily. Um, and not to say I'm an expert, I, I, you know, we're all subject scholars in our own experiences, but I think what I wanted to share was life through my my eyes as a second generation Indian American woman uh, and the ways in which I've experienced culture and cross-cultural relationships, which is different than the way that an African-American or a Latino-American or Native American would. Um, and to kind of also break through that black-white racial divide in our country and to say, look, here's my experience. Um, and, and, and if I can bring scripture and a little bit of, you know, sociology and anthropology and, and sort of cultural analysis to this cultural moment, um, my hope is that my book will be able to, to encourage and resource the church through that. Yeah, that's so good, Michelle. And I really want to take some time to unpack it because even the, the title, Becoming All Things, I mean, obviously that's taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and Paul's kind of his missiological concept of, you know, really becoming all things so that you might uh, save some. I want to unpack that because really, I mean, your, your personal experience, your family experience, I mean, you are a living testament of what Paul's writing about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, even here in your story. You know, maybe our listeners, you may or may not know this, but I mean, I'm listening to your story and you're, the intersection of like being Asian American, I mean, uh, being multiracial. Uh, and then we, we didn't talk about this, but your husband is Mexican American. I mean, right. these are the three largest, fastest growing racial groups in the United States today. You know, um, uh, Hispanics, uh, uh, multiracial, that's the second largest. And then Asian American is the third fastest growing. So, you're like right at the intersection of what what America is and what America's gonna be like. And you know, your life is anecdotal, but I also think it's what God is doing. Like it's just you're not just a story, you're 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 what God is doing right now in our local churches. And I think that's an amazing thing. If you can help us to kind of think through like when you uh, began thinking about writing this book and how, why is this message important for local churches, uh, especially those who have, you know, seen the diversity happening around them and they don't know quite yet how to engage? Like, why is it important for them to really think through these things? Yeah, that's good. Well, I, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian school, you know, attended church. Uh, I don't ever remember anybody walking me through a theology of culture or race in, in scripture. Uh, and, and, I, and I never remember hearing it preached from the pulpit or, or having uh, topics of race and culture incorporated into discipleship and spiritual formation within the church. And I think as we are in this cultural moment now, what it has exposed is that we have a really anemic understanding of uh, these issues, race and culture uh, and justice as well, right? And, and um, you know, as Michael Emerson uh, and uh, I believe his, his co-author is Christian Smith for um, Divided by Faith, and, and he talks about the ways in which we have just limited within North American evangelicalism, limited our understanding of the gospel to uh, getting, right, getting people right with Jesus, this sort of individual pietistic understanding of salvation, uh, and so, you know, 
whenever these topics come about, when a racial tragedy hits uh, in our country, you know, we just keep hitting that mantra, like, let's just preach the gospel. And, and if only people would believe in Jesus, then, you know, things like cultural competency will increase and racism will decrease and all of these sorts of things. And it's like, you know, <laughs> throughout history, it's actually followers of Jesus who have perpetuated racism. It's, it's followers of Jesus who have been some of the most culturally ignorant people, uh, you know, and, and have caused damage across cultural lines. So, just believing in Jesus is not going to make you culturally competent and an anti-racist. And so uh, there, there is a reckoning that we, <laughs> that we need to have with our own history, but also we need to, to develop uh, a, a theology of, of culture and race. And so, um, you know, when it, when it comes to these issues, and I, I talk about this in my book in the very first chapter, we need to begin by developing our own cultural identity, understanding who we are, how God made us as cultural beings, what it means uh, to be human in terms of cultural flourishing, um, and be able to read scripture through that lens and to see what God has to say about uh, racial division, racial reconciliation, and how integral that is from Genesis to Revelation. So one of the strategies um, that that's often been uh, offered for people to actually do something, um, not just, oh, you know, just flippantly, just keep preaching the gospel, but actually entering into the fray, being being a part of the change you want to see in the world, to quote Gandhi, um, which incidentally, um, by the way, when he said that, he was actually uh, taking that from the Sermon on the Mount. So, it, you know, some, some haters would be like, oh, there they go, quoting Gandhi again, you know, uh, non-Christian. He took that from the Sermon on the Mount. He interpreted that as that's what Jesus is saying, is be the change you want to see in the world. That is what the gospel actually leads to. It's not enough just to preach a gospel. We have to live it too. And I think Gandhi got that often uh, more accurately than most Christians do. In fact, there, there's a famous discussion of him with E. Stanley Jones, uh, the missionary to India. And he said, well, if Jesus is who you say he is, how come so few Christians actually live out what Jesus taught? And so as, as we look at that, one, your book actually has to do with building uh, diverse friendships, um, kind of crossing over the cultural divide and saying, um, kind of like was asked recently at our exponential uh, conference by one of our speakers, who's not in the room right now, right? And, and why that should bother me, right? Like who's not in my circle of friends? Look through your Facebook roster, right? If you're white, are they all white? If, they're, if you're black, are they all black? If you're Asian, are they all Asian? Um, you, you have to ask the question, am I crossing these cultural divides? Am I embodying the kingdom of God, which is diverse? Um, so sorry about the buzz all quick, I'll, I'll, I'll mute. I tried to send them on lunch. We got a house a house project here. So uh, not easy swinging all this with a house building project, but why is it important to build diverse friendships? Yeah, definitely. Well, there's a lot of reasons why we need diverse friends and uh, we won't fully understand who we are as cultural beings unless we are rubbing shoulders with people of different cultures who can hold up a mirror and show us aspects of ourselves that we never knew existed. Um, 
it's kind of like when you get married <laughs> or have that first roommate right after college where there are things you learn about yourself that you never realized you valued or that made you mad or, uh, you know, until you're rubbing shoulders with somebody who is different from you. And, and more than that, sociologists uh, and, and reconciliation experts even agree that having diverse cross-cultural friendships is one of the best vehicles for exposing and eliminating our own racist ideologies and behaviors. And we need true and, and trusted friends who of other cultures who have our best interests at heart and who can lovingly challenge us when we say or do things that are hurtful. Um, now, that being said, I want to offer a caveat because I think we... We're often infatuated with the idea of diverse friendships, but don't fully understand what that means. And I talk a little bit about this in one of the chapters in my book, that there's a lot of people that I've come into contact with over the years who love to call me their friend as proof of, 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 being di of, of them being diverse or anti-racist, right? And these are folks that maybe I've met once or twice. Perhaps I occasionally bump into them at a local event or the grocery store or, or somewhere else, but... As, as an Indian American woman, I would not consider us super close if we have never uh, eaten together, if, if you've never invited me over to your house, uh, if we've never hung out one-on-one. -on -one. I, I also wouldn't consider you a close friend if you saw my neighborhood as dangerous, uh, or if you never wanted to come to East Austin, or if you only ever wanted us to hang out on your turf. Uh, because we, we live in East Austin, we do vocational ministry on the East side, East Austin is historically segregated. It's uh, where you know it's it's where black and brown people were were forcibly relocated because of the 1928 master plan in Austin. Um, and and we do ministry in disadvantaged black and brown communities here. And there are a lot of people that tell me, you know, we don't feel comfortable going to your side of town. Uh, we don't want to play at your playground, you know, for play dates or things like that. And so. Um, some some of these same folks feel like after two minutes of chit chat with me, you know, once every six months, that that now they're woke, <laughs> or, or or now they've um, fulfilled their passion about diversity. And I don't get the sense that they have a real desire for a real friendship with me. Uh, and and there are people that just enjoy knowing that I, as a person of color, exist tangentially in their life. And, and then they can go about their day, uh, you know, in their safe and comfortable neighborhood. And, and um, you know, I, I don't want to be a mark on somebody's diversity checklist. And my life should not exist to make someone else's feel complete. And people who treat me this way might call me their friend, but I wouldn't necessarily call them mine. So when it comes to the topic of diverse friends, our real goal should get, be to get to know one person at a time. Because every person of every culture has a unique story, uh, and it'll take time to really get to know them, to, to live life together, to understand what makes them tick, what are they passionate about, um, what are their struggles, what are their pains. And this process is organic and slow, uh, and it's not a checklist. So I want to just offer that as a caveat. As many of us are growing in our racial consciousness, especially after this last year, we want to have diverse friends. But there really is a wrong and a right way of, of approaching um, our, how, how we grow in our, our friend groups. Michelle, help, help our leaders, uh, church leaders and pastors and planters that are listening to unpack really what you think Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Um, because I think a lot of 
pastors, uh, and you're right, this past year has awakened a lot of them to think about how to lead their congregation to be more culturally competent and to be willing to cross boundaries. And I think about Jesus as he took his disciples across the sea to uh, uh, Genesaret and uh, and he met the, the you know, in Decapolis and he met the demoniac and that was a cross-cultural experience and Jesus was just very practical at just taking his disciples and taking them out of their Jewish element and and some pastors have been wanting to do that. Um, and I think there's one, there's a the theological conviction, which I think is where you're, you're getting at, which comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So unpack that a little bit, and then secondly, talk about what are the practical things that pastors and pastors, uh, church leaders, can do to help take their members and their leadership team into uh, a practical element of crossing cultural boundaries. Yeah, that's great. Well, what? So a few years ago, I was reading, rereading First Corinthians nine, and I was so struck by this passage in, in verses 19 through 23 that begins with Paul saying to the Jew, I became like a Jew. And I had read 1 Corinthians 9 before. It wasn't new content, but that phrase in particular just stuck with me. And I, I thought, wait, what in the world does he mean here? Because Paul himself is a Jew. So what does it mean for a Jew to become like a Jew? And so I began reading that more, pulling out the commentaries, right? Pulling out some of the biblical scholarship and just trying to figure out what does it mean for somebody of a certain ethnic background to have to become like somebody else of that same eth ethnicity. Um, and, you know, there are, in, in the first century, uh, there, there was a lot of different types of Jews, right? I mean, Paul identified himself as a Pharisee. He was educated by Gamaliel. Like, this is an intellectual elite. Like, this is a man um, with privilege, with power. Uh, but, you know, there was also Sadducees. There, there were the people of the land, you know. Um, you know, there were zealots. There was, there was all sorts of different uh types of Jewish peoples that held to different theological beliefs, even ways of life, uh, you know, and then you even have folks like Samaritans uh, that are these, these mixed groups, if you will. And so when Paul is saying that he has to become like a Jew to win the Jews, he's saying that he has to adapt even who he is to connect with people that are similar to him of a, of a, of a, of a similar ethnicity. And I began to think, how true is that in my own life? You know, um, if, if you were to line up 10 Indians, right, we would, we would all be so different. Um, and I say in the book, I am like all Indians. I am like some Indians. And I'm like no other Indian. You know, we, each of our, our stories, our backgrounds, our experiences, the way we view the world are, are going to be slightly different. Uh, and so to connect with each and every one of us is going to require adapting a little bit of, of, of how we think, how we speak, how we engage, um, you know, and, and, and Indian culture, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm interacting with, you know, like an Indian man who's from India, that's going to be very different from how I engage with a fourth generation Indian man here in the United States. You know what I mean? In terms of just gender norms and, 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 and all of that. Uh, and so it, that just struck me. And, and that's what sort of began uh, this, this book journey. And I thought, you know, Paul begins there before then talking about connecting with people of other cultures. And so 
this is this is such a good challenge for us um, as as Christians in general, but also for pastors, for for leaders within the church. Is as I mentioned before, do we know what our own cultural identity is? White white people don't get a pass here, right? Like you came from somewhere, you have an ethnic heritage. You may you may feel disconnected from it, right? Uh, you you might think, oh, I think I have Swedish ancestors or, oh, I have German ancestors or something like that and feel like, well, you know, it's not really on my mind. I don't think about it that often, but, you know, it can't be that important. Nobody gets a pass, right? <laughs> uh, we all need to, to lean into our ethnic roots, to lean into the story that God has given us, uh, our values, what we think is good and beautiful and true in the world, and then understand how people of our own ethnicity are different from us, how we need to learn how to adapt with the people that are probably in our closest circles in our own family, uh, and then be able to learn how to connect and adapt uh, with, with other cultures as well. And so I think, you know, before we really begin to even get into topics of, of how to avoid cultural appropriation and how to, um, you know, pursue justice initiatives, before we get into any of that, Step one is, do you know your own cultural identity? And as a church, how can you foster that within your congregation? What does that mean to preach, uh, preach this from the pulpit? What does it mean to incorporate culture and, and issues of cultural identity into discipleship from Monday through Saturday, right? And, and spiritual formation. What books are you reading? Um, how, are you, how are you directing uh, your, your, your people to be, becoming more cognizant themselves of their cultural identities uh, so that they can then take that next step to, to love their neighbors and love the community uh, uh, in, in which your church is located. So that's my very, very long answer to saying step one is as a church and as a pastor, develop your cultural identity, know it, believe in the biblical precedent of it in scripture, uh, understand the ways in which cultural identity and spiritual identity are intertwined. It's not this hierarchy, right? Where, you know, we utilize verses like Galatians 3.28 out of context and say, you know, oh, look, there's neither uh, Jew nor Greek. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Or, you know, we really shouldn't talk about culture and race because that's divisive or all of that. Um, we need to understand the proper place of cultural identities within the life of the believer, um, within within what it means to be human and um, and then to preach it and model that to our congregants. You know, I, I love that. And I, I think what, what we're seeing today where some of the, the rubber hits the road is the way that it's being talked about, um, you know, isn't always a Christ-like way. So for example, there's a lot of just vitriol and bitterness and anger that floats around and and I think people are like, hey, we'll have this conversation, but let's be kind about it. Like let's let's enter into this conversation in in a way that's civil, and you know, um, you know, and and I think what what starts to happen over time is that you know people the, the, this is part of exponential what they what definitely Daniel and I and, and exponential the divided no more has said, hey, there's a gospel issue here. Um, to reach every tongue, tribe, and nation, it will take every tongue, tribe, and nation. And you see that kind of acted out in Acts 20, verse 4, where after being in Ephesus, Paul sets out, uh, there's eight people leaving, and I'm sure Daniel's taken this apart for his PhD, but 
they're, they're divided into groups of two in people groups. And so you see this intentionality where Paul is not colorblind. He is very intentional in the teams he's sending out from Ephesus to say, we need to pay attention to ethnicity. And I think the church, you know, from Pentecost to the Good Samaritan to the Phoenician, like these are all, I mean, every epistle just about that we have was written with, you know, issues of ethnicity, you know, Ephesus, you were chosen Gentiles, but you know, you're not a second class citizen because you're of this ethnicity. It's all throughout the scripture. We wouldn't have epistles if <laughs> ethnicity were not a thing in the New That's Testament. Great. And, and so it, it's laced all throughout. But I think where, where it gets difficult is, I can speak for all the white guys in the room, right? Um, it gets difficult because you start to think, well, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, I totally want to uh, reach across. And what you said earlier about make sure it's not tokenism, which, you know, nobody wants to be that guy, right? But how do you strike that balance? Because I think, I think it, it's true, right? Like, um, Indians have prejudice, uh, you know, uh, people of color, uh, they don't get a pass, right? Like black people in LA fight with Mexicans and I have lots of Mexican friends and I have black family and Asian family and everybody in between. I'm raising two little ladies of color. We have these discussions all the time. Um, these things, everybody has prejudice. And so as we're talking about it, I think it, it also has to be that we're saying, this isn't like a white issue, right? Like, like my, uh, my, my black nephew says, I was racist against white people, you know, because of, you know, these three family members that got shot by police. Uh, I was racist. So, so as we enter into this, right, I think the question becomes for everybody, how do we overcome our own prejudices and, and latent racism? that exists. I know it's different when you're majority culture. I do understand there are different dynamics there for sure. But when when we're looking at this, um, I think that everybody has this responsibility. But I think what I what I want to double down on is something you said earlier. How do we show that same intentionality that Paul and Jesus showed and yet not be guilty of tokenism? How do we practically discern? Because when, when you said what you said earlier, I can, I can say, honestly, it puts a check like, ooh, maybe I won't reach across that barrier with intentionality because now I'm, now I'm guilty of tokenism. How do you ride that fine balance and discern between the two? Yeah, that's good. No, I'm glad you bring that up um, because that, the issue of inter-minority conflict can sometimes be the elephant in the room as well. And it has certainly felt in many ways like the elephant in the room this past year with rising anti-Asian racism. And, you know, the data shows that the, a lot of the violence being committed against Asians is by fellow minorities. Um, a lot of the violence against Asians have been committed by Black men. And so it's, it's going to require all of us to call out uh, that sort of racial prejudice and that racial violence. And uh, you know, even uh, at AACC last year, we did a series called Interconnected in which we sat down with Asian and African-American uh, leaders and talked about the interconnected history of African-American, Asian-American communities and the, the ways in which we have both been pitted against each other because of white supremacy, but also just this long history of, of um, prejudice and violence within our own communities and the ways in which our parents have taught us not to marry the other, right? Or not to date the other and, and, and all of this. And so 
Um, yeah, I think I, I will say on, on a side note, what, what is important to distinguish is between like, when is it racism? <laughs> like, when is it racist? When is it racial prejudice? I, I do think, you know, a lot of people talk about racism today as this as, as privilege plus power. And I think there is some usefulness in that definition, but it does localize racism to an individual level. Uh, I, I really appreciate how, you know, the sociologist David T. Wellman in 1977, but I think I, what I appreciate is the way he defines racism as a system of advantage based on race. And so in other words, race is an intricate web of institutions and policies and practices that in our society that systemically advantage one people group and disadvantage others, resulting in inequality. And so um, I think any person can have racial prejudice, racial prejudice being that we uh, reduce a person in our mind to some sort of caricature, some sort of stereotype, uh, and then we treat them based off of that stereotype or caricature. Um, and, but in terms of racism, this is something that is prevalent when you are the majority group. And that's not just in this country, but in other countries. In India, for example, we're seeing the ways in which um, COVID is just raging. Uh, you know, Dalits and Christians aren't even allowed into the hospitals to receive care if they have COVID. And so racism exists in every country between the dominant uh, people group and, and those who are, uh, you know, uh, the min quote, minorities in the country. So I just wanted to say that on a yeah. side note. If I could say something too, yeah. I remember um, in, in college when we would study, you know, in sociology and cultural geography, um, all of the, the professors that I really respected would always point out, hey, most of these wars, doesn't matter if you were told it was a religious war, doesn't matter if you were told it was an ethnic war, it's always fighting over resources. And so I, I think that definition of the systemic aspect of racism definitely gels with that because that's really what it is. Most of the tensions are not actually two races just hating each other for their skin color. It's usually that two people groups are fighting over resources and that has created a whole narrative of tension and a demonizing of the other. Because when you're fighting over resources, you know, it's you or them. And that's, mm -hmm. that's the roots of it. And in American culture, I mean, it has certainly been a fight over resources and uh, you know, it, hmm. it, I mean, That's New York City in a microcosm, right? I mean, I've seen West Side Story, right? The Puerto Ricans and the, <laughs> is it the Italians, right? There's there's this fighting, people cramped in a, in a tight space with limited resources and they fight over them, you know? And, yeah. and I think that's where systemic racism, it, 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 you, you begin to understand that system and historically that people have been disadvantaged because they belong to this people group, you know? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I've actually never heard that before, but I think there's something to it about uh, that that human nature of in competition. Um, I will say, I think as Christians, what we what we have to do is just call it out as sin, right? Like we can look all the way back to the very beginning of human history and Cain and Abel, uh, you know, and and this this tendency in all of us to create systems of hierarchy where we deem one people group as superior and, and others as inferior. And that's something that we're all guilty of. It's a sin issue. Uh, and it's something that we need to call out as such. And, and I think that's the other side of the coin is 
How do we celebrate our cultures? How do we celebrate who God has made us as cultural image bearers while also calling out the idols in our cultures and while, while calling out the ways in which our people group has committed crimes against others? And we can do both. We can learn how to celebrate uh, and confess. Uh, and, uh, and I think we need to just call it what it is, which is it's sin uh, and do everything humanly possible within the law of Christ to deconstruct those sorts of hierarchies within our own hearts, but also within our churches and within our society as a whole. You're hitting on something I think is really, really crucial for uh, those of us who are institutional leaders to to realize. And let's just narrow this down to evangelicalism. And and I don't want to say anything to get in trouble, but I think this is really important for us to to at the very local level acknowledge that there is a cultural system that we live in in American uh, American evangelicalism. Like um, I had to learn the cultural system. It was it was foreign to me. Whereas a lot of other people, uh, whites in particular, like uh, there is much more of a natural affinity towards American evangelicalism. It's a cultural system. It's a cultural variation of Christianity. And I think that we have to recognize that that exists and that it requires a lot of us to assimilate into it in order for us to be able to survive and and thrive. And I think if we recognize that, then Paul puts the onus on the religious leaders to to, um, lower the, the barriers for other people. I mean, I think his famous... You know, when he said he when he's writing to the Ephesians uh, uh, in in chapter two, and he talks about the wall of hostility that was broken. What is that wall, though? Like, what's the question? What what is it that Jesus tore down? Jesus tore down the Jewish wall of uh, laws and commandments. It was that was the thing that Jesus tore down. It was the religious elites. It was the religious uh, culture keepers that Jesus came to tear down. And I think that we have to. Uh, be able to name and point that because like <clears throat> I'm all for personal sin. I think I, I think personal sin can have a collective effect. But I think what Paul is saying in that passage is that it was actually the religious elite cultural system that kept Gentiles out. He was actually articulating back to the Gentiles that don't you remember when the laws kept you out? And aren't you thankful that Jesus tore down those laws that you can come uh, and be a part of this? And I think American evangelicalism, you, you said this earlier, Michelle, there is a reckoning that we have to come to grips with. There's going to be a white lash. We've seen a white lash. There's going to be, you know, um, other kinds of lashes. Um, but I think when we poke at the idol of American evangelicalism, not, not the orthodox doctrine, but I think the, the cultural gatekeepers of it, uh, that there's going to be a little bit of like pushback. There's going to be a little bit of, um, you know, we're rubbing the system the wrong way. But I think as I understand Jesus's ministry, he says he came to the lost sheep of Israel. There is something that he was coming to condemn about the religious system that he had grown up in. And I think that um, it's a, you know, your book is helping, I think, a lot of people to understand that for those of us in an evangelicalism, there is a, there is a sense of, um, uh, of cultural Christianity that's been embedded in that, that many of us had to learn in order to, to thrive in it. And that's okay because we, and some of us, we willingly did that. But there's coming a point where if you don't do that, then you're not acceptable in that fold. And I think that's very offensive to Jesus. And I think that there's, that is the wall of hostility that Jesus came to bring down. So um, I'm really, I'm really fascinated by just, you know, your thoughts as you're, you know, you, you and Aaron, you guys moved into Austin and, 
and you know you're planting an evangelical church in a black and brown community what were some of the things that you navigated so that you weren't bringing a colonial system of church into that neighborhood and you were more identified with those that were there than perhaps even the gentrifiers. So can you, this is, a, yeah, I'm, I'm getting brass tacks here at this point, but yeah. as you tried to live this out and you tried to partner with Jesus in, uh, in that neighborhood, what are, you know, what are some things that you did that you thought were well, what are some things that maybe you, you mistakes that you had to learn? Uh, this might be, be useful to some of our listeners. Yeah. That's a great question. Well, I'll, I'll just say on a side note, I think this is where actually understanding the difference between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant is actually really important in terms of uh, the call for cultural conformity with God's people in the Old Testament versus within the New Testament in the church age, uh, this, this call to go out into all the world and to become all things to all people, right? And this call for cultural conformity has come to an end. And even uh, during the time of, of Paul, when he hears of followers of Jesus doing this in Jerusalem, he goes and says, cut this out. <laughs> you know, this is, this, is not, um, this is not how we are to engage with people anymore. It's not about become like us. It's how can we become uh, more like the people around us for the sake of the gospel. Um, and so, yeah, you know, admittedly, when we were commissioned uh, by a church planting network up in Chicago to come down and plant a church here in Austin, we really, we only knew uh, white evangelical suburban, <laughs> you know, content and resources on how to church plant, right? And, and it was all the things which we couldn't even do, like we couldn't raise 100k, we couldn't, you know, we, we couldn't buy a building, uh, all of these sorts of things. But we came down to East Austin with this knowledge of like, okay, this is how you start a church. This is, you know, you do the coffee talks, and then you do the soft launch, and then, you, you know, you do the flyers, and you put out the big lunch and all of this. And we realized very quickly as we were getting to know the people of East Austin and they're like, who's your grandpa, you know, and, and, and they're asking, do like, have you, how long have you lived here in this community? Uh, and it was just a, a, an immediate reminder. We are the outsiders coming in and because of gentrification processes and all of the rest, there is a huge distrust in urban settings, particularly in historically segregated and disadvantaged black and brown communities to outsiders, even though we are fellow minorities. And so uh, we, we shifted gears, right? We did a few coffee shops. No one came by except for, <laughs> except for a few people experiencing homelessness that were sitting outside. And when no one came, they're like, can we drink your coffee? <laughs> like, yes, here's our coffee. Uh, and, and so we, we realized everything about the suburban model and, and the traditional middle-class church planting model was not going to work. Uh, and we just started getting to know community leaders, people who had been doing the ministry, doing the work in that community for, for years. And, and I'll say this, we came back to Austin because Aaron, uh, as you mentioned, Mexican-American, he grew up single mom, government housing on the east side. So this is his community. This is where he grew up uh, and he gets poverty. He grew up in poverty. Um, but, but then asking community leaders, what is it that you're doing? What is the work that you're doing? How can we partner with you? How can we um, learn from you, serve the people that you're serving and uh, just taking on that posture of humility? Uh, and, and, and we also started just, you know, 
going to the different government housing that is around where we where we meet at the local middle school, knocking on people's doors, asking if we could pray with them, uh, just getting to know their stories, just getting to know real people, uh, inviting people to eat around our table and, uh, and, and also eat at their table and just live life together, understand what their biggest needs were, which is in East Austin, where we are, it's rent <laughs> and groceries. Uh, people are hungry. And people are always, uh, you know, being threatened with eviction from their homes. These are the two biggest needs. And so um, we crafted our ministry as a church to serve those very specific needs. And so uh, we started as a church plant of four people. <laughs> and uh, every, every person that has walked through the doors of Hope Community Church up until now has been some, somebody that we have met on the streets that we have eaten together, that we have built a friendship and that they have, you know, eventually decided to call hope home. It's not an attractional model. It's a very organic, slow process. Um, and so, yeah, I think we can't just have this one size fit all magic formula for church planting. We really need to know the community, who they are, what the needs are and, and come in as the humble student, as the humble learner and to say, how can we, continue the work that God is already doing in this uh, community, as opposed to coming in and thinking like we're going to come in and fix it all. Um, Cause that, that doesn't work out so well. Okay. So uh, you're speaking, you're speaking to something that I know I'm super passionate about. And I think Daniel is as well. We're both church planners and uh, we think in, in eat and sleep and breed church planning, I suppose. Um, but you're mentioning, and I know this is kind of part of what the book even is an embodiment of is becoming all things. You, you looked at the need and the, 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 the missional burden in your city and said, Hey, we got a structure around that. Everything you're saying, so glad to hear this. So refreshing. Um, so let me ask you to double down on that. Can you unpack a little bit more about what that looks like? to structure your church around those needs of rent and food because i think people listening that's quite unique and it's it's definitely innovative but i also know it's a way church planning ought to be it, a yeah. mission ought to dictate your model yeah. um so would love to hear a little bit more about that well i'll say something that's not going to sound very sexy peyton <laughs> and that's if you want particularly in the type of context that we're in in urban church planting disadvantaged disadvantaged brown and black communities if you want to reach the poor you have to live poor and so you know you can't come in you know rolling up with your audi <laughs> and your four thousand square foot home and say yeah i'm gonna <laughs> care for the people living in the government housing um you know when we first moved to east austin we lived in this little 396 square foot home uh, you know, in the flood zone, in all of the things, right? Uh, <laughs> next door to us, our neighbor was like one of the most well-known, well-known, uh, <laughs> like drug lords <laughs> in the neighborhood. Uh, uh, I thought you might say chemical entrepreneur, but. <laughs> Chem okay, there you go. There you go. Uh, and, um, you know, we just, we, we went through it all. I mean, we, we ourselves were just, uh, we were under the poverty line. We were on Medicaid. Um, you know, we experienced flooding. We experienced the feral animals, the flea infestations, like everything you can possibly imagine. And it was what every single one of our neighbors was experiencing too, um, except for we had bank accounts. Even in that, we were privileged because we had bank accounts. And, 
if our home ever got broken into, we didn't have just piles of cash laying around that could get stolen, right? And this is such a real reality for single moms, single Latinas with, you know, six, seven, eight kids. That's, that's um, you know, more than, more than one woman in our church uh, who's, you know, working and, and, and brings all this cash home and gets their apartment robbed. And then all of a sudden they can't pay rent. And so, um, you know, even in those early years, I mean, we were so dirt poor. We came down to Austin with like a thousand dollars in our bank account. <laughs> and yet, you know, and so we couldn't, no one was tithing, you know, like, how could we ask people to tithe? Uh, I think we were living on like $900 a, a month. Um, and, and if anybody in our church lost their rent money or couldn't pay bills, I mean, we just figured out a way to make that work from our small income. Uh, you know, I think there was a few months where we just ate nothing but oatmeal. <laughs> and, uh, you know, by God's grace, we survived, our church survived. Um, and, uh, but so, so I'll say that to serve the poor, you have to live poor. You need to, you need to not just understand it intellectually, like, oh yeah, I read a book on race and poverty. So you have to experience it and understand what it's like to go to the government clinics for medical care and to be, you know, all the things racially prejudiced, you know, profiled and turned away because of the color of your skin. Like we've experienced all of that. And so when we minister and shepherd to our people, we get it. We know what they've been through because we've experienced that. Uh, And the second thing I'll say just briefly is that develop leaders from the community. You know, the people walking through our doors, these are people who are, um, people who've been falsely incarcerated, people who have, who have just come out of jail, um, people who are living on the streets, people who are just in a really bad place, but they are the people of our community. And we see every single person walking through our door as potential leaders. And it is our, our hope and our prayer that as we, we mentor people, as we shepherd people, this could be our future associate pastor. This could be our future, you know, uh, worship minister or children's minister or, or, or what have you, or just, you know, a small group leader, what, whatever. But we see every person walking through our doors as a potential leader. Uh, and so our church is, we intentionally say we are a minority-led multicultural church, and the leaders in our church are all here, grown up from East Austin, who know, kind of in the vein of Acts chapter 6, right, who know how to serve the local community because it is their community. So um, I could say more, but live like the poor, to, to serve the poor, live like the poor, and, and develop local leaders, yeah, that's so that's so good and so important. Michelle, one of the things that I appreciate about you uh, as I've been learning more about your ministry and, and tracking with you is you, you've just got a way that you can connect with people from the spectrum. And, uh, you know, and I, that's probably a, a classic you know, example from your book, You Become All Things to All People. And you've been able to work with, I would say, you know, those in evangelicalism that are on the conservative side. You know, Thabiti, he endorsed your your book. He wrote your Ford. But then you've also been able to work with those who some would consider to be a little bit more on the progressive side of evangelicalism. I'm not going to ask where you're at. Like, uh, <laughs> you can tell us where you're at if you want to. But what I'd like for you to uh, do is share with some of the pastors and church leaders that are really trying to be that, like, middle voice that is not the crazy extremists on either side that are trying to get people to hear each other. Um, Cause I know as, as Peyton said earlier, you know, people are right now in this place where they're kind of 
they're kind of screaming at each other and they're the yeah, the yeah. conversation is not nuanced because of that if that makes sense and so how have you personally navigated the different um the spectrum of evangelicalism how you've become friends with so many people and how how have you been able to leverage your influence to help them to have a more cohesive conversation yeah that's a great question i don't know if i'm sidestepping your question or not but i think it, as simple as this sounds, uh, we have to value difference. I think that's in part what it means to become all things to all people is uh, valuing the way that other people think, the way that other people see the world, and and fully recognizing that it's going to be different from your own, right? And and seeing the value in that. Uh, I think so oftentimes as, as humans, but also as evangelical Christians, we fear difference. We we, we are terrified that somebody who thinks differently from us, you know, we automatically assume, okay, they're, they're a heretic, right? And I've been, called ev- I've been called everything, right? On the one hand, I've been called like a Marxist and neoliberal uh, and, and uh, whatever else, but then like a, a woman hater and pro-policing. I've been called complementarian and egalitarian, you know, like I've been called it all. Um, and so I think on, on the one hand, I try to stay away from the the terms and the names. I just want people to know I'm a, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus and I am unapologetically rooted in scripture. Uh, you know, perhaps in some ways theologically conservative, but socially compassionate. Um, I believe that I can hold my Bible in one hand and fight for the people on the streets in the other. And, uh, and, and so I think what this starts with though is valuing difference and not being afraid to be in conversations with people who think differently from us, to not necessarily label them as heretics right away, uh, and to say, you know, I, I might actually have something to learn from, from somebody who I feel like is on the far end of the spectrum. But we as Christians, we should never lose sight of the goal. We have a shared goal to proclaim the gospel and advance God's kingdom. And so regardless of where you stand on some of these, you know, there's, there's, my husband and I, we say major on the majors and minor on the minors. And I mean, there are some things that are major theological sort of creedal doctrinal things that uh, we do need to hold to, to, to call ourselves followers of Jesus. But there's a lot of things that should be in that minor camp that we like to turn, you know, uh, in, into a huge battle. And um, I think for my husband, and I, when it comes to vocational ministry and my own professional work, I, I want to work with a wide spectrum of people with that shared goal in mind. And so um, value difference. Don't fear it. Well, it has been so good listening to the wisdom that you've been dropping, uh, particularly uh, having planted in an urban context in Long Beach, everything you said. I mean, the secret that you soon discover, if I just disciple everybody like they're a developing leader, they will become them. That was yeah. the biggest takeaway for me in an urban context was it actually changed my ministry theology to what I now define a leader as is someone who is just discipled really well. They always will become leaders. And I think Jesus demonstrated that with the 12. I think he took 12 knuckleheads that none of us would put any ministry, all ministry rejects. None of them made it except for, you know, maybe John, Andrew, maybe the two. Maybe he took to, to show he could do something with religious people as well. Maybe we needed that lesson, but he literally developed them into ministers and they were total like, you know, uh, get out loser kind of kind of guys, you know, and Jesus 
just discipled them for three years and they turned the world upside down. And I think if we'll do that, that will definitely um, do that. And so I I, I love what you said, like you got me all excited. So, um, (laughs) but but we had a couple questions come in. Um, We wanna thank you for coming in. The book, by the way, has been Becoming All Things. Uh, We're with Michelle Reyes. Uh, Definitely go pick that up. It's at Amazon, it's at Zondervan. It's probably becomingallthings.com or becomingallthingsbook.com. Uh, which one is it? Is it both? You go, well, I, so I, you can go to my website at michelleamireyes.com and get all that good stuff. Very cool. Well, we, we have a round of some fun questions that came in from the audience that we're holding off because we don't want to break your stride. You were you were on fire. So we're like, OK, <laughs> we're, we're, we're not going to do that. But a um, couple of our fun questions has been, number one, what's your favorite board game? Number two, what language do you speak at home to your kids? And did you and your husband pick a language? So uh, we have one minute for that answer. So board games and language at home. Oh, man. Sequence all the way. I love sequence. I rarely lose. So <laughs> bring it on. <laughs> uh, and, and Ticket to Ride, that would be uh, number two. And then in terms of languages, we speak a mix. I mean, English, I think, certainly is the dominant uh, language. But, you know, I speak some German uh, to our kids. My husband and, and his mom speak Spanish. Uh, and my mom speaks Hindi and Gujarati as, as, as well. So our kids are kind of growing up with, with all of that in the home. All right. And Brooks uh, Hammond in the peanut gallery, the guy who actually makes the magic happen uh, is yes. Ticket to ride. So you, you, you have another <laughs> fan, uh, someone who might play that game with you. Nice. So um, anyways, uh, hey, real quick, before we get off here, um, one more time, the book has been Becoming All Things by Michelle Reyes. Definitely pick it up. You've heard her heart. You've heard what she had to say. Um, definitely a practitioner, someone on the front lines, very evident by what she's uh, been saying today. So she's actually living what she's preaching. So be sure to pick up the book. Um, but uh, there's also something else. I got to do a commercial here, which I'm happy to do because I am very excited to hear a particularly a particular speaker at the Resets summit which is going to be a free interactive online experience on may 19th that's coming right up right around the corner and it is on the topic of leading with confidence in the post-covid church now there are a bunch believe it or not max lucado is going to be there so uh i don't know uh definitely check him out he might know a thing or two uh francis chan is going to be there that's pretty cool uh, lots of other guys, Craig Rochelle, lots of big wigs, lots of big names. But the guy I'm most excited to hear about is Daniel Yang. Woo-woo, Daniel Yang in the house. So uh, you got my vote. If this were a popularity <laughs> contest, I would vote you for class president at that conference. Yeah, it's a, it's quite a starting line. Line up, but uh, yeah, it, it will be a great time, and I, I really want to encourage folks to, to jump on that, especially if you sense that God is doing something in this season of ministry, and you need some time to pause and just hear with other people. I think really that's what it's uh, designed for. So, looking forward to that. Yeah, it's a pretty big lineup, and you can sign up for it at multiplication.org forward slash reset. So be sure to head on over there, register for that, the Reset Summit. Thanks for joining us today. This has been Exponential. I've been Peyton Jones. Daniel Yang has certainly been himself. And Michelle Reyes, thanks for being our guest. And on behalf of Exponential, thanks to all of you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.